This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. Welcome to a uh, special episode of Big Sky Lead. This week, we're going to do things a little bit different. Um, First, we're going to go over our um, usual weekly rundown of all things happening in state government and up at the Capitol. And then we're going to transition to a conversation about um, how COVID-19 affected Montana and how we as reporters um, responded to the story um, with the one-year anniversary of Montana's first COVID case uh, here in the next few days. Let's start with you, Tom. You uh, reported on a pretty contentious bill that drew a lot of testimony earlier this week. It's House Bill 505 um, from Speaker of the House, Wiley Galt. Why don't you tell us what that bill um, seeks to do? Okay. So yeah, Tom, let's uh, let's talk about elk management, and that's what this bill is all about. Uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, under state laws, actually obligated to manage elk at what are called objectives. Um, that's a predetermined population target. Um, that has been, uh, by and large, uh, pretty tough in a lot of areas, and a lot of areas are well above objective populations. Um, so what... Uh, House Bill 505 seeks to do is uh, try to incentivize both landowners and hunters um, to try to get those, those elk down to uh, down to those objectives and to keep them there. Uh, The way it does that is it would offer um, landowners owning 640 more acres in uh, hunting districts that are at objective uh, 10 non-resident elk licenses. Uh, those licenses would be beyond the 17,000 the state sells uh, via the lottery. Uh, the second part of that would be a bonus point enhancement system. Uh, basically, what that would do is um, if you're a resident and you go buy your general elk license, or if you're a non-resident and you uh, are, are draw a general elk license, uh, at that point, you'd be able to say, I'm going to use uh, this general elk license to hunt a cow elk on private land in areas that are over objective in exchange for that um, you would get an extra five bonus points for a future drawing so uh, say you did that for a couple years you could come in um, and actually buy a bonus point each year have 10 extra bonus points and say try to draw something like the bear paws or the elk horns or you know some of these um, very very difficult areas to draw so House Bill 505 has generated a lot of talk and online discussion. Where did the bill originate? So it, it's pretty interesting because, uh, you know, the Gulf family is, is a large landowner in Montana. Um, they've been uh, pretty outspoken about elk issues, things like shoulder seasons. Uh, the speaker told me he had, he had originally intended to uh, come to Helena and offer a bill that would uh, codify shoulder seasons into state law. Um Shoulder seasons themselves are pretty controversial uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, uh, there's some concerns about um, what it means for access for for bulls for public hunters. So uh, the theory being that okay, you 
you uh, hunt cows to manage the population, but um, they, there would be you know outfitting or access for bulls during the general season, and then uh, basically the public hunters would have to come in and, and uh, clean it up afterwards uh, with the population cow hunts. Um, the other problem with, or I shouldn't say problem, but concern about um, shoulder seasons is just the length of the hunt. Um, you're talking August 15th start into uh, February 15th end for a lot of these seasons. And uh, that's a long time. A lot of people think to be hunting elk, especially on the winter range. Um, so uh, kind of out of that, um, FWP, uh, you know, they're thinking of ideas and things to deal with uh, management objectives and things like that. Uh, Governor Greg Gianforte recently appointed uh, uh, Hank Warsek as the new FWP director. Uh, they met with the speaker and um, started uh, st- sort of talking about some of these out-of-the-box ideas um, that have been floating around FWP probably for some time, generated through you know different discussions. And uh, apparently the speaker liked a couple of these ideas, and, and that's how we got to House Bill 505. So um, th- I think this is also how... Um, we saw the here in House Bill 505 sort of sort of kick off was um, Galt really didn't say much to introduce his bill. He kicked it over to FWP right away and uh, Director Hank Warsek. And uh, give you a little bit of background on it. This is a bill that we worked with the speaker on, so we're going to own this. Uh, what it is is it's an opportunity to provide some incentives to take care of what is the issue with overpopulation with elk. My goal as a director is to never come here in front of you and talk elk again. I want to make sure that we can do something that brings these numbers down and put them where the, at the department managing rather than having to come to the, the, the legislature to do that. So um, this seems to be, and, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not a fair observation, but is this, does this show a, a change in philosophy at Fish, Wildlife, and Parks under this new administration? So... I think yes and no. So I think there's always been an attempt to uh, reach out to landowners. Um, I think uh, that's been certainly mixed success and there's definitely been hard feelings over the years. Um, I think some of the proposals that FWP has brought forward to try to manage elk, um, I can think of one example where they were going to go to a cow only season in certain districts where, you know, six, seven times over objective, um, landowners came back and said, well, that sounds punitive to us and you're trying to force us to open our gates. Um, so the incentive approach is new. Um, I think there's always been some incentives, block management payments, um, different programs like that, um, game damage hunts, but, um, to offer landowner tags is certainly something new for Montana. Um, and one person that did did sort of speak to this was Mac Minardi. He's, he's the executive director of the Montana Outfitters and Guides Association. The thing that causes us to rise in support of this is the fundamental notion that it's incentive-based. I, I don't really know if this will actually drive landowners together. I mean, the Hatfields and McCoys, are they going to get together over 10 elk tags? I honestly don't know. But without collaboration by adjacent landowners, without some, some ability to collaborate and, and close the gap between their fundamental values, 
the landowner who thinks all the elk in the world ought to stay run on his property, and he's happy to have that, versus the guy trying to make a living cutting hay or putting hay up or cut, making fence. Without those two having some measure of incentive to get together, what has been ha working, what has been going on in the past has not worked. It hadn't worked. And so we need something new. Um, so what Menard's talking about here is, is I think, something that we've heard from landowners for uh, a long time with FWP, that uh, there's perception out there, at least, that, that some of the actions they proposed in the past have been uh, punitive, uh, meaning that, uh, for example, proposals to make um, certain areas that are, you know, five, six, seven times over objective cow-only areas, um, sort of an effort, um, the perception among landowners that they're trying to force gates open rather than trying to work with them. So um, even though I, I think there's some apprehension even among the proponents of this bill that it might ultimately be successful, there was a lot of uh, support for, uh, I guess, just the approach and maybe a change in, in looking at an incentive-based approach. So this bill saw a lot of opposition, um, both in the process that brought it and the content of the bill. Uh, what were the concerns uh, that people drew about the process? Yeah, so Tom, we had over 30 hunters or hunter advocacy groups testify against this bill. Um, some of it was pretty, uh, pretty contentious. Um, a lot of people very, very upset by it. Um, the, uh, the process was pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, TV host Randy Newberg spoke to that a little bit. Um, so let's hear from him. This bill is a redirection of how elk are managed in Montana. They say that politics is a game of picking winners and losers. And the political donations are the insurance premiums we pay to make sure we're on the winning side. This bill and its huge change in elk management it's like a lot of bills. It's going to create quite a few losers, many losers. And like many bills, this bill will reward a small handful of carefully selected winners. This bill was drafted by Fish, Wildlife, and Parks without any input from the hunters of Montana. It was only recently that a few groups were informed of FWP's intention to bring this bill forward to your committee, even without the normal public input and vetting process. In all my years of testifying on wildlife bills, when FWP has brought forth legislation, it has been at the request of a citizens committee or at the request of the commission, unless it was merely a technical correction of a rule or regulation. So what Newberg's talking about here is that, uh, you know, traditionally you have this interim committee called the Environmental Quality Council. Um, it, it's lawmakers meet um, in the two years between the sessions, and they talk about bills that FWP is bringing forward. Um, and what Warsec said was, uh, you know, we just didn't have time to do that with this bill. Um, the speaker was going to bring um, the bill he was talking about with shoulder seasons. Uh, we wanted to talk to him about these ideas. So um, it didn't go through that process. And he actually did say that uh, they were remiss for not having as much public involvement as they normally would. Um, so so that was one thing that, that really got people upset about. Um, and then really the contents of the bill um, – also really uh, got a lot of opposition. Um, there's something called the North American model of um, wildlife conservation. Um, there's a lot of tenets to that. Uh, and basically what that says um, for, for the purpose of this bill is that we're not going to commercialize wildlife. 
Um, there's certainly uh, that, that that was an issue a lot of people brought up, and uh, one of those was a uh, Kalispell hunter Ryan Bussey. Um, he decided to come all the way down to Helena and and uh, talk about what he saw this bill, and he had some pretty pointed comments. I'd like to remind everyone that a century and a half ago, dedicated people restored our big game herds, women, men, Republicans, Democrats, people of all creeds, colors. They came together to establish, as Gail said, a system called the North American Model of Wildlife Management. And there was good reason for that, for that movement. As Teddy Roosevelt said at the turn of the 19th century, when speaking to a writer he met who had just ridden across the top tier of Montana, the writer he met told him he was never out of sight of a dead buffalo and never within sight of a live one. And of course, our deer and elk and antelope suffered the same demise. From those smoldering ruins, our management system emerged and it became the North American Wildlife Management System. And there are some central tenets of that system. Gail hit on many of those, but the number one central tenet is Wildlife cannot be commercialized, they cannot be sold, they cannot be traded. That is central to that mission. Yes, this bill attacks elk, but more specifically, it spits in the face of nearly 10 generations of Montanans who have sacrificed a great deal to establish a system. A system, by the way, that is now literally the envy of the world. And I can think of only one reason why anybody would want to do that, but why would we want to undo such a marvelous accomplishment and that's agreed, the same exact reason that we had to establish a North American wildlife mi- management system in the first place. So the, the North American model um, was, was brought up a number of times, uh, like I said. Um, one pretty interesting exchange, um, Warsex said um, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of states out there, including states that have land under tags, that will tell you that um, they are following the North American model. Um, he talked a little bit about a different philosophy, which is the public trust doctrine that, um, you know, the agency is, is obligated to manage the species for the greater good. Um, so the other thing that we did hear about was the bonus point system. Um, a lot of po- people were pretty upset about that. Um, they said that, you know, we've spent years and years and years um, putting in for every year you get a bonus point. Um you know, pretty equitable system. And this would sort of um, upend that whole system. And, um, you know, one person that, that spoke about it said, you know, my, my young son's got three bonus points. Somebody could uh, choose to do this one year and they would have twice as many the next year. And it's just not fair. So um, I know uh, there's one amendment out there that uh, we'll, we'll hear during executive action that would uh, reduce that to uh, one bonus point rather than five. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a pretty interesting to see how this moves forward. I think even, um, speaker Galt at the end was saying, you know, he was, he was willing to work with whoever wanted to work with him on it, um, to try to improve the bill, whether that's putting sideboards up on some of these, um, tags and tag numbers, which was another big issue. Um, you know, what is the potential of this, of this bill? So, uh, we'll see going forward what that looks like. Before we move on, Tom, I'm hoping we can um, backtrack to kind of a topic we've been talking about over the last few weeks through the session. Um, And does this fit into this trend of codifying wildlife management through the legislature um, and kind of subverting the rulemaking process of the commission? Or would this not go before the commission either way? So that's an interesting question. Um, 
what I can tell you is that uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is in the middle of rewriting its elk management plan. So that's actually where the objective numbers are. Um, so one thing that did come out came out of this whole discussion is that um, there's two ways to get to an objective number. Either you reduce the number of elk or you raise the objective. So there is some thought out there that landowners could get together um, and actually want to uh, raise the objective to, to suit their area, and then they'd be able to qualify for these 10 landowner tags. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's something that will go through the commission, um, and so that would be one way to do it. Um, on the specifics of the bill itself, uh, I think there a lot of this would fall more under statute, uh, you know, whether you would have landowner tags or not, whether you would um, – the, the bonus point system maybe would fall a little bit more under the commission, but I think those are all good questions and ones we should probably look into more. Thanks, Tom. Seaborn, this week you wrote about the state's new attorney general joining a lawsuit that's aimed at stalling out immigration policy coming from the Biden administration. But through the lawsuit, you found another story about Montana quietly entering into an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security over the enforcement of immigration laws. Uh, what's the agreement about? So this agreement is something that... Um, no one had really known about back in January when it was signed. In the agreement, Montana agrees to uh, assist the Department of Homeland Security with uh, immigration enforcement, whether that's providing information or helping with uh, security policies or uh, kind of things along that nature. And then in exchange, uh, DHS agrees to give the state 180 degree or 180 days uh, to review any new changes in policy that might adversely affect the state uh, in the state's view. And so in this agreement, the, um, the Department of Homeland Security rec or acknowledges uh, that, you know, immigration policy can affect Montana's uh, state resources, um, certain kinds of spending. And the, this agreement opened up the door, or at least um, gave Montana the ability to uh, take legal action against the department. If the Department of Homeland Security happened to change its policy um, before giving Montana that 180 days notice. So when was this agreement signed? The agreement was signed in mid-January. So this is, um, you know, a couple days after uh, Attorney General Austin Knudsen and Governor Greg Gianforte, who both signed the agreement, um, this is only a few days after they were sworn in, but it's still um, something like nine days before President Joe Biden uh, was sworn in. And so, I mean, it, it's the timing of the agreement is kind of draws some questions just because it was widely understood that the new Biden administration was going to have a more relaxed immigration policy than um, the Trump administration has in the last four years. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, questions about the legality of this agreement, just because, um, you know, there's, uh, some people who don't necessarily know if the, um, if the United States needs to run immigration policy by the States, that's the, um, that's sort of a, that's a federal 
uh, priority. That's that's something that Congress handles. It's something the president can set an agenda for, but it's not really up to the states, um, according to the, some of the legal experts that I spoke to. And so aside from that, it's also not clear if um, Kevin Cuccinelli, who was the uh, deputy director of DHS at the time, um, could sign an agreement that bound the the federal government to an agreement with the states. So what's the landscape of existing laws about enforcement of federal immigration in Montana right now? I think we all started paying a little closer attention to this last year uh, when the Supreme Court of Montana ruled in a 7-0 decision that uh, state and local law enforcement didn't have the authority to um, enforce federal immigration detainers. This was from a case up in Lincoln County where a man had been um, arrested uh, and tried to post bail. He was not um, in the country legally at the time. And so um, the sheriff there had uh, received an immigration detainer and, and said, we're going to hold you and we're not going to, um, we're not going to allow you to post bail. And so um, the Supreme Court said uh, that sheriff didn't have the ability to do that. And so this year we're seeing legislation um, coming through this session that would grant law enforcement that authority to enforce those immigration detainers. So that bill is from Representative Bill Mercer. He's a Republican from Billings. Um, and we're also seeing other immigration-centric bills. Uh, we've seen uh, Representative Ken Holman from, he's another Republican from Miles City. He's got a bill that would ban any sanctuary cities in Montana. Uh, he's the first one to say that we don't have sanctuary cities in Montana, but uh, adds that this is sort of a proactive measure. Um, the same bill actually passed through the legislature last session, but that was vetoed by by uh, then Democratic Governor Steve Bullock. Um, we've got a new governor this year who's uh, signaled that he's in support of such uh, legislation. So um, we'll see how that turns out this session. So Montana's border is with Canada, not Mexico. Uh, what's Knutson's concern here for the state? The, the information he put into this lawsuit really points to um, the societal costs and public safety that uh, he talked about on the campaign trail last year. He, uh, you know, is talking about the kind of cost to the state being um, emergency Medicaid, the, the cost of housing uh, inmates um, in jails and prisons around the state. And then he's also talking about kind of the... Um, the, the extra things that come along, I mean, he's talking about um, expanding uh, education for um, undocumented immigrants who are, who are in schools. And, you know, he cites uh, estimates that put about 4,000 undocumented immigrants in Montana. Um, that's a pretty rough estimate, but it also the same organizations he cited shows uh, 4,000 in Montana. That's, I think Vermont is the only state by that same organization's estimates that has fewer undocumented immigrants in the country. And so um, certainly by those measures, uh, it, it wouldn't seem like a, a large population in this state comparatively. What are the next steps for this lawsuit? Um, I think at this point, we're, uh, we're waiting to see if, um, if the, the judge in the Arizona case, um, which was filed on Monday, will allow this um, this lawsuit to stand just based on the agreement that Montana claims uh, was violated by the department when 
Joe Biden put a 100-day moratorium on deportations in the country. So in this case, Montana has joined Arizona, which is a border state, uh, to um, to claim that this, you know, essentially this, this agreement was violated and Montana is going to be harmed by um, all of the things I talked about earlier. And so, you know, the Department of Homeland Security signed these agreements with jurisdictions and states um, around the country. And so uh, I think the kind of the play here is to see how um, how states might be able to challenge federal immigration policy um, as, as they see it, as they see it as insufficient. And so um, this, I don't think this will be the last lawsuit we see like this across the country. And um, we'll be watching to see what happens in this one. Thanks, Seaborn. Uh, this is where uh, we transition uh, to looking back on um, a year that was uh, kind of dominated by the coronavirus pandemic. The state reported its first cases on Friday, March 13th, 2020, and things have changed a lot since then, both in terms of the virus's grasp on the state and how we've reported on it. Holly, you and I were there for some of those earliest press conferences and stories. Um, can you take us back to what you remember from that time? Yeah, um, to be totally honest, like my memories are just so bad from that time because there's just so much going on in this year. It's been so intense. But earlier this morning, I was listening to a press conference that I recorded when Governor Bullock, former Governor Bullock, declared i think the state of emergency the day before those first cases and for one thing like we're all sitting in the room together you know a bunch of reporters around a table which is so bizarre to think about and there's like this moment at the start of it where the governor is like do i call it COVID 19 is it the coronavirus like kind of stumbled on that and then i asked a question that just seems so funny now i was like do you ever envision a point where you would put in restrictions that somehow change the way we live life in Montana. <laughs> and just looking back at like how naive it sounds to be asking that, um, it's just pretty interesting to look back and see how different everything was then. And just thinking this, like, oh, press conference, and then go back to my normal job covering the election. But yeah, yeah and this was, this was when, you know, every Ace hardware and every store in town had no masks on the shelves. Um, and if I remember right, that you know, nobody in this press conference was wearing masks, and there wasn't really uh, even a, an understanding of what social distancing was. Yeah, um, I. <laughs> there was a moment I was thinking about this too, and it was, I think, after we'd had a couple cases, we were still having those in-person press conferences, and a member of the governor's staff. I've been trying to talk to somebody at DPHHS, and they pulled me aside after, and we went in a room to sit down and this DPHHS staffer goes in to shake my hand. I was like, yeah, just handshake. And this governor staffer just looked on horrified, like, guys, don't shake hands. They're not supposed <laughs> to be doing that right now. And just all those little things, like, so bizarre. Well, and, and, you know, those early days, it was, it was just kind of a world of unknown, and we were chasing update after update. Um, but there was a, a, a need to, to get into communities and figure out the impact on communities and how communities were responding. Um, let's go back to when we went up to Browning, um, the Blackfeet Reservation, pretty early on. Um, and, you know, we spent the day up there. Um, why don't you fill people in on, on what we did for that story? 
Yeah, I mean, for one, we got in a car together and drove up to Browning, <laughs> which seems like such a horrible idea now. Um, and I remember, like, we had a conversation in the car where we were like, are we the white people traveling to the Indian Reservation? And could we bring this? Like, could we right. bring the illness there? And I, we just had no concept of what the right things were to be safe. Um, and then we got there. I was realizing as we were talking, like everybody we were interviewing had just been at state basketball. Mm-hmm. And that was such a big thing because people were frustrated. Those tournaments weren't just shut down. And so I was trying to weigh like, okay, am I at the risk or am I putting myself at risk and really having like no information to make those decisions well. And mm-hmm. I mean, we went into schools that were shut down and I remember how bizarre it was like walking into an elementary school and it was just dark and these women were packaging lunches in the dark. And I think that's the first time it hit me that things were going to be really different for a while and how weird it was. And I was, it was weird because like I'd gone to Brownie a lot for reporting trips, but it was it felt so different to me than it ever had. Well, and and what we were doing is, is we were they were bringing they were taking um, delivering lunches to school kids at home who weren't in school. Um, and using the school bus routes. And in those early days, um, when the virus wasn't necessarily widespread throughout our communities, there were these other crises that were happening. And it was this supply chain crisis and, and this kind of this hysteria that drove people to grocery stores and to your Costco's or whatever and emptied the shelves. And so, um, you know, getting food to people was, was a, a, one of the initial difficult hurdles. And finding those supply chain um, deficiencies um, to get food out. Um, And you touched on something that has kind of become the paradigm for um, all of our reporting ever since. And and it's this question of, um, am I at risk or am I the risk to who I'm reporting on? And as, as you know, the scientific and medical community has come to understand the virus and and we've come to understand how to respond to the virus and how to keep ourselves and others safe. What has it been like um, reporting on this um, and keeping that paradigm in mind as to, you know, personal risk, but also um, community and social risk that you may be causing? Yeah, it's been fascinating because I remember... Like when the stay at home order hit, like that was the last time, like I covered like every governor's press conference until I went on leave um, in September and it wasn't at them. Cause I was like, well, it's not, I can do my job without being there. But like that Browning trip, we couldn't have done mm-hmm. without being there. And then with some election stuff, like once people started having, like once it got nice for summer and then there were outdoor events and all of that, like just recognizing, like I can't talk to voters in a meaningful way unless I'm catching them at these events. So like kind of dipping my toe in doing that sort of stuff. And then I remember like election night, I was down in Bozeman and that was such a, such a mind trip for me because they had this like outdoor tent for reporters, but then inside there was just this really big party. And from what we could see, like it just looked kind of like it would in a non pandemic. And then, People would come from that party to fill the tent outside when there'd be a big announcement and just thinking about like, there's all these people in theory, it's outside, but it's in a tent and they drop the walls and we're all really close. And, you know, like the reporters were all masked and compliance to the crowd was pretty spotty. But 
like just that kind of stuff's been super fascinating but i remember i was trying to do a story when this all started with a woman who um was a caregiver for her elderly father for this big project we were going to do that i just bowed out of pretty quickly but we had a really frank conversation where she seemed like yeah we can sit down we can talk and i was like i don't i don't think we should and we never ended up doing it but just kind of balancing that was super tricky let's let's step back um oh tom did you have something to add well yeah tom i want to want to reverse the uh the process here and ask the host a question go for it so tom i know uh you know as as writers we you know could pretty easily adapt to to this but as a visual journalist um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happened to your job because if there's nothing to take a picture of if there aren't these events these seminal uh, moments how are you able to to adapt to this and 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 sort of rethink and think outside the box yeah yeah i mean I, so you're right um when things happen virtually it's kind of hard to make a photograph out of those events um and that that was quickly became um apparent as things were shutting down but you know what it did was is it completely shifted? It was almost a new lens um, to the way we look at local news and, and everything that maybe was just a just a annual story or whatever became a news story um, because everything had a COVID element to it. And I think from you know a journalistic approach, it it made me look at all of the things that I would take for granted visually happening. Um, that happen all year or every year um, and look at them differently about how they're different and how um, everything that we know about our daily lives is kind of upended. And so um, it, it certainly made me look harder um, at what was happening and how to make images out of it. But I think it ended up um, being, you know, a, a not a good experience because it's been a, it's been, you know, a, a terrible year. Um, but it's certainly, um, helped me, um, see deeper into things that, that are before a pandemic, you would have never really recognized as, as meaningful. Um, and, you know, kind of back to the process, um, you know, I have a question for you, Holly, about the tracking, of the cases and where they were coming from and and i remember you and i um were kind of learning how to you know track data as it was happening and tell us about those early days of you keeping track of the numbers and the counties um and how you did that and how that quickly changed yeah i was i found this like calendar a couple months ago where I was writing daily, like what was happening. And I remember like by the third day, just thinking like, this is probably going to get out of hand pretty quickly. <laughs> like, this is such a silly idea. And in our kitchen, we were working, we have this, like, I found it in a Butte estate sale years ago, but this big old chalkboard. And I like started marking things up there. And I remember my husband saying, God, that's depressing. I don't know if I want that in our kitchen. And then I was like, so quickly, this is, not going to be sufficient. So we, like we moved to, and I remember too, the state used to like update numbers twice a day. And there was this huge outrage when they switched to just once a day. And I got this 
really frustrated email from someone. I was trying to say, like, I think I think it's an acknowledgement that these numbers are just going to look terrifying soon. So it's going to be hard to do twice a day. But even then we switched to a Google Doc sheet, I think, that we used for a while update on the website, kind of these graphics that we had. And I mean, it's always been a challenge because, like, you think we saw pretty early on, I think the state really tried to be transparent, but the numbers that they put out would often not match what the counties were reporting. And it was, you know, took some reporting for us to get through this, but a mechanism of just the counties were so overwhelmed. And, you know, someone explained to me in one county, like, if I can spend an hour contact tracing, I'm going to do that instead of update our numbers to the state. Mm -hmm. So we might put something out on Facebook, but that just won't look right. And, just having that struggle through the whole thing of people really wanting to see those daily numbers and especially at the county level to make decisions for themselves, but kind of having to put it all out there with an acknowledgement of, you know, this may or may not be right. And it was like, it was interesting because I think just a mechanism of my position, like I did all that reporting for like, I felt like a month and a half or so straight. Mm -hmm. And then finally like got people on the weekends and stuff, but that was kind of my daily jam through summer and just trying to like constantly struggle with knowing these aren't the best numbers, but they're what we have. Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember we reached a point where you were kind of constructing this data set and we realized that we needed to do something with it and we needed to try to make it less jargony and, and just numbers and try to make it more visual for people. So, um, we built this this sort of infographic that we hosted on all the stories where we tried to visualize. And we kind of paralleled the state's platform in the same way. Like I remember in the beginning, it used to be just an email from the governor's office and it'd be like four positive cases in Toole County, you know? And now you look a year later and there's this sophisticated online dashboard that gives you all the information, geographic information, numbers, recoveries, deaths, hospitalizations, and now where you can get your vaccines, who's vaccinated, counties vaccinated. And, and we were kind of at the same time figuring out, okay, how do we take all these numbers and how do we show people what these numbers mean and, and create, you know, a better understanding of these numbers um, to help people understand. And, you know, and then we started seeing, um, indications of outbreaks and i was hoping you could maybe touch on tool county because that was kind of the first big one um in the state that was considered a, a, a community-wide outbreak yeah i remember at the time i'd done an interview with the governor and had asked him before that you know, what are your, what are worst case scenarios for you like i think a lot of us ask this question of officials over and over like what keeps you up at night and he you know, pretty consistently from the start was assisted and long-term care facilities and native communities. And that was the first one we saw. And it was, it was hard because they were putting out some information on Facebook, but you couldn't get great information from people up there. And I remember you know, calling and calling and not being able to connect with people. And you know, like we were talking about earlier, that weighing of like, normally I just get in the car and drive up there, but that's probably not a good idea. And I probably like, I can't remember if that was during the stay at home order or not, but like, you know, as a reporter, we were essential workers and could travel around, but then thinking like, maybe I wouldn't find anybody. You know, like normally you could just go in, walk in the door and be like, Hey, how's it going? And that it wasn't the scenario we were living at. But when I finally connected with somebody who worked up there, 
they were a little frustrated and totally makes sense. Like, you know, we're frustrated that you wrote the story saying no comment. We're, we're just too busy. Like, we literally, we get up as soon as we can in the morning. We're here. We never take a break. We don't go home. We don't go to the bathroom. Like we just are here mm-hmm. and then we collapse. And just like, that was just such a traumatic, like for them just hearing it. Like right. I was just like, I think this is so intense, but yeah, I mean that, and then to go from, we had that and then stay at home order. Then there was that period where it was just like, there were no, like there's case growth was so low. Yeah. We, we had uh, what we thought was a wave in the spring. And then, yeah. I mean, days where we had zero cases in June and then yeah. things really changed and really changed fast between late yeah. summer and the end of the year, Christmas time. Um, I mean, I wrote a story in June and I read it a couple days ago for a story I'm working on for this weekend. And I was, the story was like, oh, the, all the cases in the state right now, we can tie it to two clusters basically. And just how bizarre that sounds now, <laughs> two clusters, like, okay. But I think like kind of to what you're just hitting on, like that ebb and flow. And then like, for me, like there's this weird gap cause like, I went on medical leave for six weeks when it was just starting to get really bad. And so mm-hmm. I totally checked out. And for me, I had this hard reawakening when I kind of like got back to work and aware of what was going on and case growth seemed just terrifying to me. And I remember thinking like I had this bizarre interaction with someone who's like, Oh yeah, and it's kind of on par with what it's been. And like a lot of health officials I've talked to in the last week for a story, kind of looking at how we're year into this, we're saying like the magnitude build. And so people kind of just kept accepting whatever level we were at. Right. And so it was harder for people to understand. Like, and if you look at it now too, like, you know, we're, we're celebrating, you know, over the last couple of weeks, average you know, seven day case growth of 200 cases a day. And that's been lowering and they're all good trends, but 200 cases a day compared to back when 20 seemed like a huge right. deal. Yeah. Like that's just, that perspective is so interesting. Yeah. And like you were saying, you know, by December when it was at the peak, um, numbers were just in the thousands. Um, well not multiple thousands, but low thousands per day. And it, it it seemed like people had kind of the same approach and same understanding between hundreds a day and thousands a day. And, and as reporters, you know, we were struggling to um, show the the magnitude because a lot of what happened, um, a lot of the misery and uh, you know the the ultimate death that happens as a result of COVID nineteen happens in a hospital, and a lot of what happens in a hospital is not open to the public with you know HIPAA and privacy laws um, and the fact that there's a hyper contagious virus floating around. Um, and so, you know, we, always, we, we continue to struggle to show not only the effect on healthcare workers, but the effect on people who had COVID. And I was, um, pursuing a story with the hospital, um, for a little while in the fall. And, um, I, I was hoping to just kind of spend a day in all parts of the hospital that, that handle COVID patients and just, you know, document what goes on, um, and just try and show people an inside look at what happens there. And, and it, it ended up getting good feedback and I ended up getting good feedback from inside the hospital while I was there before it had even published because, you know, the ICU nurses I talked to, the medical floor nurses that I talked to, you know, the emergency room docs, um, they were all just, I mean, 
working hard and kicking butt, no doubt about it, but they were beat, you know, and they were beat because they, you know, witness and live in the misery of COVID-19 every day at work. And then um, they go home or, you know, they go out into public, go grocery shopping and they just see, you know, kind of a, a people not taking it seriously and not necessarily that, but people also just like the frustration of people not understanding. And so they were happy to be involved in a project where, you know, we could show um, the community um, what's actually happening inside the hospitals. Um, and I, and that was kind of a continual struggle from the first days to the, to the, to where we are now is trying to, you know, distill the, the, um, problem um and try and help people understand uh the magnitude of it yeah and i i'm so curious too about going forward like all of these people who have long-term effects and how that because that also you don't really hear much or see about and you just i interviewed a woman who you know had a baby through all this and Mm -hmm. had some pretty adverse outcomes for her and the baby and just like those stories because like you can't go visit people in the hospital mm-hmm. and yeah, like, it's just how to cover that. And yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear from Seaborn a little bit uh, about his, some of his coverage at the height of things. Um, tell us where, where you were, you know, and what you were covering um, over the last year when it, when it pertained to coronavirus. Yeah, I was at that time. Um, I was still in Western Montana at the Missoulian and I just um, kind of in that, in the early stages of things, like you guys were talking about where we had, you know, 20 cases a day and, and people are uh, really locked themselves down uh, in those times compared to where we are now. But um, I remember uh, really taking a, a quick interest in uh, the prison system. And I think a lot of people did just because it felt like this, powder keg that could, um, blow up in a really big way. This, these confined spaces, prisons, jails, uh, where people can't get out and they really can't social distance and maybe hygiene isn't probably the best, uh, it's ever been there. And so, um, you know, that anticipation really put a spotlight on the prison system in a way that I don't know that, um, the public had considered in a long time. Um, you know, the, uh, the media reporters were looking for, for regular updates. Um, the interim committees were, uh, looking for, for reports on how they were going to handle an outbreak, how the prison system and the department of corrections was going to handle an outbreak. Uh, I remember the chief justice when he was directing the chief, chief justice of the Montana Supreme court, when he was directing judges to release people from jails as they could, uh, saying that it would be virtually impossible to contain the virus once, uh, they got in that confined space. And so, um, you know, we kind of moved through the summer in this really tight, uh, space of anticipation until, uh, it kind of hit in the fall when cases really started getting out of control in Montana. And, um, you know, at this time, I remember covering communities in, in the Bitterroot Valley where, uh, the sheriff and the uh, county commissioners had said that they weren't going to enforce um, the mask orders or uh, kind of restrictions and left that up to businesses to um, enforce as their own. And that kind of, um, you know, that that sense of uh, personal responsibility there, um, it, I mean, it affected the prisons in a big way. One of the, the biggest outbreaks that happened at the prison 
happened after jail staff attended in uh, a wedding over in the Anaconda area. Um, Deer Lodge, where the state prison sits, is, is right next door. It's in the next county. And so public health officials had uh, tied um, kind of an explosion of cases from this wedding to the prison jail. Prison staff had gone to this wedding and, and tracked it into the prison. And um, we had gone from, you know, a few cases over the course of a couple months among staff to where cases were began doubling in the inmate populations um, just constantly. And at the same time this is happening, there's outbreaks in the Yellowstone County Jail. There's um, the private prison up by Shelby, uh, Crossroads Correctional Center. You know, they were testing people and getting 43% of their tests among inmates were coming back positive. And it was um, just this really uh, and surreal moment where we'd gone months without um, a real outbreak in a, in a prison setting. And now that it was happening, um, there was, you know, you could, you could see prison staff just uh, trying so hard to um, stay positive about it, but there was so little they could do to actually contain it. And so um, I think it was in late October when uh, the department of corrections um, requested a deployment by the, by the national guard, the Montana Army National Guard, and I think the Air Force National Guard uh, went there to assist with staff shortages. So many staffers were out um, because they had COVID. And um, I think that image, in my mind, there have been so many times during this pandemic when it feels like we're living in some kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Like this is this has to be something that, um, you know, somebody cooked up in a studio somewhere because it just is so incongruent with how um, the, you know, the... Um, the, the structure and the rig- rigidness of this, of this prison system is, is totally being thrown off course. And so, and at the same time, because of all these problems in the prison system, inmates aren't moving between counties. Counties are getting uh, really frustrated. Sheriffs are being frustrated because the courts are still moving along. People are still being sentenced to jails. And then those outbreaks happen at the jail level. And so, I mean, there was lawsuits over this um, kind of how inmates were handled during this pandemic and um, judges were overturned. And that's uh, kind of the the frustrations that played out on the law enforcement side were um, just striking, I thought, last year. And so, you know, it was... Um, sort of at the end of the year when things got under control, the national guard had left the Montana state prison by uh, mid January, nine national guardsmen had uh, contracted the virus while they were at that mission there. And um, it's uh, it's, it seems under control now I've uh, I've checked um, you know, the last couple of weeks and there's been um, one or two cases among inmates, but it's, it has not amounted to, um, another outbreak, you know, in total, uh, six people in the custody of the Department of Corrections um, died from COVID. That's what that's how the department has identified that number. Right. And uh, no prison staff uh, luckily um, had died. It's the only deaths came from inmates. And um, some of them had extra complications. And that's, um, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, people were just screaming at state government officials to um, release inmates as as in as many as possible and that that never really happened and um i think this is going to be something we look back on and see you know where where did these policies from 
the pandemic, you know, which ones are going to translate into, um, you know, permanent policies and, uh, is, is cleanliness or, um, just the, the, the kind of, um, the separation and, and sanitation efforts around the prison going to stick around? Are we going to see, are we going to see clinical services, um, kind of keep their, um, foot on the gas in, in these areas? And, um, that, that, whole episode with the the prison system is, is definitely when I think about what I was covering last year, that one uh, rises to my mind. I think too, just kind of building off that, like how something that's like, so something you cover a lot and is normal is like, so dramatically changed. Like we'd be kind of remiss if we didn't talk about just how much COVID changed the election. Oh like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> 2020. Well, like I just remember like when 2020 started framing up for like, okay, this is going to be such a long year. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be the biggest election I've ever covered. And then it was just like, poof, like so dramatically changed mm-hmm. overnight. And just, I think from like how, how the election worked with voting by mail, how campaigns worked with Democrats trying to find a balance of what sort of in-person events were okay and mm-hmm. what weren't and, just how the virus got so politicized, you'd see different types of events on the Republican side and the virus itself became a huge, you know, campaign point on either side. And it just, and you know, it's such a dramatic difference. Yeah. The moment I think I realized um, that this was different was, uh, you know, Typically, during an election cycle, there's no shortage of opportunities to uh, make photos of candidates. You know, they're usually very public. They hold press conferences and they hold, you know, campaign events, campaign stops. Um, But it dawned on me when, you know, there were story after story coming out and there were no photos of these candidates because there were no in-person, you know, events. And so... I remember, you know, we would get like campaign finance reports or, you know, you'd have these stories where typically you'd have a, just a trove of, of stock uh, photos of these candidates that you would just pull from. And I've never been in a situation where we didn't have enough photos of candidates. Um, yeah. You know. Do you remember in February, really late February, we went to Bozeman mm-hmm. to cover all the Democrats in a thing. And I remember being so sick of seeing that photo because every time I needed a photo of candidates, that was that the was one. the only. Yeah, because that, that was. was yeah, yeah. You know, um, and. I guess it, it just it, it it made it so when we did have in-person events, um, at least from my side, um, you just shot more. You just took you just took advantage of every moment you had to make the work that you were you know assigned to make there. Um, and election night was, you know, typically election night. That's kind of like, you know, as journalists, we you know um, both love and hate election season. Um, but then you get election night, and it's kind of this big, you know, you're up late, you're what, you know, you're looking as thing as uh, uh, votes are coming in, and it's usually like a big party going on around you. And, you know, if you're at the winner's party, there's big pomp and circumstances. If you're at the loser's party, you know, there's people kind of kicking the dirt and stuff. Um, Just really high energy events um, that kind of cap off the election season. And that is not really what we had. At least, you know, I was in Helena um, at the Democratic Watch Party for, you know, Cooney and Bullock and, um, there was they didn't have any sort of in-person party you know we it was it was a big room with 
like 10 journalists in the back and we just sat there and twiddled our thumbs. Um, but it was a little bit different down in Bozeman, I think, for you, Holly, as you were saying earlier. Yeah, I mean, super weird still because we're sitting outside and it's winter <laughs> and cold and just this strange thing. But it was weird because we were all like sitting there masked, but I was thinking about like normally we'd order pizza yep. or like be sharing snacks or just like a lot of stuff would be happening that didn't in that camaraderie of like, like I remember after, well, it was still in the middle of like the tester election in 18 and we we're up in great falls and like just stopping at some point, grabbing a beer, yep. you know, when it was after midnight and clearly work was done and it was like, okay, we're going to be up till 4am. Might as well like, yeah, you know, enjoy life slightly for a minute. Right. This, you know, this life was so bizarre because I covered my thing. I went back up to my room in the hotel. I was, like trying to avoid people in the elevator and <laughs> all this stuff. And then just like, I sat down on the bed and I was like, okay, now what? Like, what? You're right. Uh, what? But also I think it's just you know, the outcome was so different. It was such a substantial win that we weren't still waiting. But I think even that might be part of, you know, people's preferences and how they, how they voted because of the pandemic too. Yeah, I think, the other thing that kind of stands out for me is um, some of that really distilled down into local politics too. Um, you know, I think back to, you know, some of these protests, for example, um, we covered uh, related to, you know, some of the, the local mandates and, and things like that. And, you know, it, it was never not present. It seemed like every decision and it kind of goes back to like what we talked about earlier, um, as a journalist, you wonder what what your proper role is and what amount of risk you're willing to take yourself mm -hmm. uh, because you see these either these large groups of people or um, you know I, I I don't know that this necessarily happened in Lewis and Clark County, but certainly like Seaborn was talking about um, Ravalli County where large groups of people showed up uh, purposely you know refused to remove their masks because they believed their rights were being violated. Um, you know, should you be a person in the room like we normally would documenting that or not? Um, I think we ask that question a lot, especially on the local level, um, because, you know, a lot of the the state angst and, and things like that ended up here. And, and I think the other thing to think about, too, is um, this summer was, was Black Lives Matter um, really coming to the forefront and some of those big rallies, too. Right. Um, and how do you cover those effectively without... Um, putting yourself in danger, but also, you know, capturing the story and, and everything else. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, back to the protest things, you know, we, you know, we, as journalists, we find ourselves in um, contentious situations with people or covering contentious situations or, you know, demonstrations where people are mad and, you know, and in my brief career as a professional journalist, um, I've never been berated so much as a journalist um, for the work that I do, um, then at those anti-mask and kind of anti-coronavirus demonstrations, there was this idea among demonstrators that um, the newspaper itself was basically proliferating um, a big charade or a big illusion that this virus was bad, and you know they perceived that it was kind of um, not real, um, and they would make it very known that us as journalists, um, we are kind of the reason that the virus exists in the first place is at least that's kind of what I was told. 
Um, so yeah, that was the, it, 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 the divisions about who thought what about the virus really played out in the streets um, more than I expected it to. Can I, yeah, can I just weigh in on that real quick? Because I think this was a, a, a frustration of mine personally. And, you know, you don't try to get personal with this job as much as you can. But um, the newspaper industry was hit hard by this. I mean, let's just throw that out there. Um, if businesses aren't open, they're not advertising. And advertising is important to the newspaper um, just for, for its financial ability and, and right. business. Um so if there was a personal stake in trying to perpetuate this, we would be the last ones uh, that would want <laughs> the entire economy to shut down. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think when you broke it down for people on a one-on-one -on -one level, they understood that, that like, you, you know, we were in some ways reporting not necessarily our own demise, but um, we're certainly very worried personally um, about what was going to happen to the industry. Um, because I think we all care a lot about it and, and want it to continue and see it as a valuable thing we do. Right. Um, yeah. But but that was just a personal kind of angst on mine. I think Holly could probably talk more about. I There's like two, for one, like RIP my inbox this year. <laughs> it's been rough, but there are two things that just stick out to me so much. And one is, so I had surgery at the end of August and because I'm me, like the first thing I do when I'm awake after like calling my family is I just pop up my phone, I'm scrolling through. And like one of the first work emails I had is a bunch of profanities and then like masks kill people and you can't breathe in masks and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there in a the hospital room masked, like watching my oxygen meter and it's like fine. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> this world is something right now. But then the other, and I mean, I think we've all had this, like how we cover the legislative session and how challenging that is, like being there or not and making those choices for us. And I had this like woman get in my face a little bit because she was like trying to talk to me. And I was like, hey, can you just back up a little bit? And she was just like kind of losing it about like COVID isn't real and all this stuff. And it's happening. It's like two members of my husband's family are in the ICU mm -hmm. and like one ended up dying. And just like I was running through that in my head as I'm trying to talk to this person who's trying to tell me COVID isn't a problem and that I don't need to be asking to like preserve my safety in this interview. And just like all of those layers of things was just like, too much to handle. But I think that's all like we've just, like it's all like all of us have had this like interaction of it's like our, like Tom was saying, like, it's our lives and our livelihood. Yeah. And we also have to step back and cover it. Like I'm not going to tell that woman in that moment, like, Hey, here's what's going on with me personally right now. But yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, unless we're at the scene reporting on our own house burning down, typically um, journalists are outside of the story and we're independent observers. And um, but with coronavirus, whether you like it or not, and whether you were able to shake it and take it out of your mind, we had a personal stake in every story, I mean, physically, because we were either there or we weren't there. And by being there, we were making a decision um, as to putting ourselves at risk or putting somebody else at risk. And, you know, it's not like we were, you know, reporting on what was happening in a crystal ball. You know, we were reporting um, on people who don't believe the coronavirus exists while 
text messages in our phone were informing us that family members were in the hospital or family members had deceased and and we didn't have any choice but to be thinking about this personally and it made navigating you know objective journalism even more difficult i think going forward what do you, what do you think about that one thing that just made me think of that was such a huge challenge is i and i think journalism is having this evolving conversation about what reporting both sides of an issue means. And especially if we're seeing more and more, like one side might not be engaging truthfully or there's challenges with just, like I think we're just the typical both sides is something that we need to be reexamining and talking about. But then the extra layer of responsibility with that and public health information, I think was something we really struggled with. And especially like with the protest and covering that, that we were talking about, like, it's fair to say there's people who have frustrations and mm-hmm. they're real frustrations that those people are having, but they might not be based in the science that we know about this, or it might be putting out a really harmful theory and how we balance that of like, you don't want to just cut off an avenue that was what we saw like a significant part of Montana had these frustrations and how to, how to report on that without harming, right. I think was we had that discussion so many times this year. Right. You know, but, you know, here in Montana, we were lucky, though, because uh, other places that had stay-at-home orders and had a lot of um, the things, the lifestyle things that people people typically spend their time doing shut down. You know, we have, I mean, we're the big sky state. we got the big sky. we got everything that happens outside of the buildings and the cities that we live in. Those were all still open for business. Um I mean, Tom and I got on an awesome turkey hunt uh, this year. We got on an awesome elk hunt. Um, so I think we were a little bit more fortunate than perhaps people in more urban areas and um, you know less rural states uh, that we had the ability to kind of you know live our normal outdoor lives as if nothing happened. And I think that a lot of people had that same uh, same response is you know. The coronavirus is indoors. Well, we should just spend our time outdoors then. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That was one thing I think that really stood out for me covering outdoor issues is, um, you know, Bullock's order had a specific sort of exemption for outdoor recreation, um, which it was a little confusing at first because I think um, part of it was that outfitters weren't part of that. So I think there was, you know, some frustration there that, um, you know, the idea was we don't want to be encouraging people to travel into the state or travel across the state. We want you to recreate in your own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly outfitters t- took it pretty hard. Um, right. You know, granted there were, you know, relief packages and things like that. I would hope a lot of them were able to tap um, to continue that. But um, it's like you said, Tom, like, wait, I don't remember the Craig boat launch in the Missouri in March ever looking like it looked last year, uh, some of the trips we took. Yeah. Uh, and well, and I remember state park. like during, you know, during, you know, when we were still trying to figure this out, I remember calculating, we're like, well, you know, that boat launch is always usually full of people. Should we pick another boat launch? And like calculating what boat launch to use based on how many people were going to be at the boat launch, you know, and we saw, I think you did some reporting on it on, you know, state park visitation and stuff being up this year. Wasn't it Tom? Yeah, state park visitation was was absolutely crazy this year. Um, and it was crazy in the shoulder seasons, which uh, 
you know, it's typically the times when that's um, a little slower. And the data from state parks was interesting because it was um, the uptick was Montanans, right? Um, it was it was residents that were going out and and you know going to state parks or going to fishing access sites um, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, w- what better way to socially distance than in a raft on a river? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, it, it doesn't doesn't get any better than that. But um, so I think it'll be interesting to see as things sort of um, return to normal. What sort of impact that had on people? Did it? Did did people pick up a fishing rod or or a shotgun for the first time in twenty years? And are they going to keep going with it now? And we're going to continue to see sort of a resurgence in in people that that had been you know locked down in that right. that day to day life in the office. Um, yeah, yeah, are they are they going back to what more yeah. more outdoor recreation? So yeah, this our, is the summer. Uh, I learned to fly fish. Yeah, Holly, you learned to fly fish this summer, yeah. and. Um, if I remember right, caught every single trout in you know a one mile every stretch of unknown name under un- five inches an unnamed on Montana, Montana River. Oh, we weren't going to name it Holly, but I guess now everybody's no because I was going to say clearly everybody found that campground ah this mm-hmm. ah because you were there and there was clearly everybody there. Um, yeah, you know it's it's it'll be curious to see. Um, you know, cause I, you know, my outdoor recreation over the summer and into the fall, I definitely observed a lot more people out in some of the spots, you know, and it's nice to see, um, it, it's nice to see people out there enjoying, you know, the, the wonderful opportunities that Ma nature provides us. Um, except, you know, when I'm out hunting and I see more people encroaching on my hunting spots. So I guess we'll That's just be in, in town pressure on the trail system in Helena for sure they were like well they ended up closing part of the trail that wasn't supposed to be open anyway but use just got so high Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a huge just all these communities that have that outdoor recreation right there Mm -hmm. was discovered by so many more people which is great right just more pressure Mm -hmm. on it yeah i I know um one of our reporters here at the ir recently wrote a story because um the forest service the the local forest service rangers office um saw a huge uptick in campground use and they were getting calls about people who didn't know how to camp and they were calling the the district office and just straight up asking how do i camp um and these are calls that those um, receptionists there have never gotten before 2020, you know, people never called them. They would come in and ask about, you know, where are campgrounds and stuff, but not just straight cold call. Hey, how do I camp? Um, so I think that it's pretty telling of people who would have not ever <clears throat> maybe, um, gone out into the out of doors, uh, certainly took the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to do so. Can I ask sort of a general question? I'm, I'm just curious everybody's take on it, but, um, I know I ran into a lot of reporting where I, I don't know if you call it like coronavirus fatigue or it it sort of, it felt like every story you had to tie it to coronavirus in some way. And I would actually have readers, like I wouldn't include something on coronavirus, um, that was tangential to a story and they would email or call me and say, Hey, you completely forgot about this and this and that. Um, was that things, those things you and Seaborn Holly ran into? 
Yeah, I think, you know, after after so many weeks or months or whatever it was, um, you know, it it felt totally like uh, like circumstantial if you ended up writing a story that didn't have something to do with coronavirus yeah. or, you know, how often how often you're writing it in a story the just the words coronavirus or COVID kind of, and it eventually it's sort of, uh, you know, tuned down every story. It just kind of, it was like an understanding, like, you know, that it's the virus, you know? And I think over time, uh, people generally <sighs> grew more suspicious of coverage. Like Tom was saying, um, and I, and I don't think we were trying to overdo it, but I, I certainly think that, uh, that, that fatigue certainly, um, was, was born out of constant COVID all the time, but it didn't change the fact that as, as time went on, it, it became more important in Montana where it was such a low wave at the, at the beginning and then got so out of hand, uh, towards the end of last year, you know, that that this is this is what we're here for and that's um it 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 just became more important to to make sure those stories uh they that they mattered that they brought every every voice in that we could and that um you know it we were able to show people why it mattered so much yeah i remember it was the day after the june primary and I did a story sort of on how the shakeout of Republican primaries and if the more conservative candidate won. And I just was like ridiculously excited to write a story that had nothing to do with COVID. It was kind of my first one. I remember calling people for it and be like, hey, I'm not calling you to talk about COVID. Isn't this great? And of course, like the story had to mention COVID, um, but wasn't about it at all. And I think that was really my first non-COVID story from like, March 13th to June 3rd <laughs> felt like. Yeah. And I should say, I, I, I saw it both ways too. I would see, you know, people who thought we were reporting too much on it. Certainly. I think that was out there a lot and people were critical for better or for worse. Um, but then you'd also see people who were upset. We weren't reporting on it more. So mm -hmm. um, it, it is interesting to me when you see the dichotomy of readers that, um, I, I think a lot of people when they're in their own camps and believe one way or another, don't understand like how much we hear about it from both sides mm -hmm. on an issue as yeah. major as this. So, Well, one of my struggles is when to talk about like how compliance looked with public health mandates in a story and when that was relevant or not, mm -hmm. you know, cause I'd just be trying to cover a campaign story, but look around and be like, okay, no one's wearing a mask and they, in this specific setting under the local or state mandates you should be or that kind of stuff. And just how, how to balance that in stories that weren't just about COVID and especially with the legislature starting to, I think like early on, a lot of our stuff was commenting on everything and not commenting, but you know, documenting in every story, like here's what this room looked like in terms of COVID compliance and all that kind of stuff. But then it fades away as you're just, covering the legislature right well maybe we'll see does anybody have any closing thoughts or or what you're looking forward to doing when um we're all vaccinated and we can continue our normal lives <laughs> this has been super therapeutic <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> now I think like just within like my personal life, my mom just booked a trip here for late summer. Okay. Um, but it's still, like she's not staying at her house. She's doing a hotel and like there's all these kind of provisions and we were planning it last night and kind of couching it on like if everything keeps going okay and if and if and yeah, super exciting and terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I almost think about like what a novelty it was when vaccination started, and um, you know now a lot of people I know, um, older folks especially, have been vaccinated, and you know are interestingly enough trying to get their minds back around. I think returning to some semblance of normal, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's been so long, it's almost like it's they've forgotten how, and we've all forgotten how in some ways. So right. Seaborn, any closing thoughts on a year with the coronavirus? It's been a long year, guys. <laughs> um, no, I just think you know it's it's perfect timing that these these vaccines are coming out now because um, you know it's summer. Uh, I think we're all looking forward to getting back to what we do most summers and meeting new people and, and traveling new places and, uh, and, and kind of getting back into that, that pace of life. And, um, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Yeah. You, you said it was a long year and, and I kind of am at this weird mental state where when I look back on the year, it feels like the longest year ever. Um, mm-hmm. not only from a personal standpoint, but from a, you know, a professional standpoint, but then I also feel like it was like, it didn't happen. Like all of these things, all of these events, like birthdays and holidays and seeing people and all these seasonal things, these sort of like landmarks in time that kind of define a year, they didn't really happen. And so, you know, you you, you, you look back and you're like, wow, it just feels like I lost a year, but it was the longest. You're missing those landmarks. Yeah, but it was also like the longest or most intense year probably of our lives. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to concerts and bellying up at the brewery. Um, nice, yeah. nice. I'll meet you there. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, that's been another episode of uh, Big Sky Lead. Uh, if you want to keep hearing um, coverage and updates from the state capital and Montana state politics, uh, give us a subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.